And on that evening of, the, of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, may we clearly understand the words of our Savior. May you help Pastor Wayne just boldly proclaim the truth. May you help us as uh, we might be hearers of the word. Help our hearts that you might cut to the heart and convict us. That you might even assault us with the scripture this morning. That we might wake up and, and realize what has been done for us. What has been accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. And may we live the life that we've been called to live. May we be the righteousness that we're already considered to be. We thank you for these truths and, and we glory in them and we're excited to hear the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you know that all four Gospels end the same way? Did you realize that? And it's not with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's with Matthew quoting Christ who says, Go therefore and make disciples, teaching them to obey all I commanded you. Mark ends his gospel with, Go preach to every creature. Luke ends his uh, record to the Gentiles, Go preach to all creation. Now John comes along and in chapters 13 through 20, he tells us why the Lord has recreated us in Christ. This is the reason for it. And a lot of times people will ask, well, how, how can I know what God's will is for my life? Well, Christ is going to tell you. He's going to tell you why you have to be born again. He's going to tell you what is expected of you when you are born again. And the amazing thing about this group to whom he is speaking is they are very unlikely guys to be used to the Lord to bring about a change in human history. I mean, these are just ordinary common guys, most of them fishermen, tax collector, a political activist, a zealot. And yet it's their martyrdom. It's their martyrdom because of what they witnessed in the incarnate presence of Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. All of that was pivotal to human history. That's why everything before this will be dated B.C., before Christ. And everything after this will be A.D., Anno Domini. That's Latin, short for in the year of our Lord. And due to man's fallen nature, of course, attempts have been made to kind of erase this, a pivotal, this pivotal event. Um, changing A.D. to C.E., common error. Uh, changing B.C. to B.C.E., before common error. And yet the one thing they can't change are the facts. Christ came. It's a fact. He died. It's a fact. 
He rose again. It's a fact. He ascended to the Father, ushering into human history a new day. As a matter of fact, from the moment that he said to tell us die, and that veil was ripped from top to bottom in the temple, Israel will never again offer sacrifices in a tabernacle or a temple as they had done for 1,500 years. But those who saw the risen Lord will now continue to go to synagogues throughout all of Israel, witnessing to family, friends, and anyone who will listen to them. And then they will gather on the first day of the week to worship. It's going to become known as the Lord's Day. And we see the origins of that in our text today. Look at verse 19. It's Sunday night. Sunday night. Earlier this day is when Mary of Magdala went to the tomb with additional spices to counter the smell of decaying flesh. And she saw the tomb was open. She immediately leaves to find Peter and John who came to investigate. How did the stone get moved in the presence of the Roman guards? How did that happen? I mean, who would have broken the Roman seal, putting their lives in danger of being executed in order to take that body? Why? And, and why would they remove the cloth strips that had been adhered with myrrh? You don't do that if you're robbing a grave. You don't have time for that. Plus, it would be very difficult. How do you even do that if you want to do it? I mean, myrrh is, is this gum-like substance that, that caused the strips to stick to his body. How do you unwrap the body and then take it out without anything on it? Who would do that? Well, we know the Sanhedrin wouldn't do that. If they were behind this story, they would have readily produced the body of Christ. And they would claim, he's a liar. He's a liar. He said that he would arise in three, he said, tear down this earthly temple and I will raise it up in three days. So they want to be able to produce the corpse of Christ. They want to be able to bring the corpse of Christ out into public. They obviously didn't take the body. If the Romans did it, well, why in the world would they incriminate themselves by claiming they fell asleep? Knowing that they'd be executed for derelict of duty. And then blame the disciples for it? The Romans certainly didn't do it, and the disciples certainly didn't do it. They couldn't do it. They're still hiding. They're afraid. They've gone back to their meeting place now, fully expecting someone to knock on their door and blame them for something they didn't do. And John says the doors were locked. What doors? Well, there was obviously a door to the entrance of the residence, and there was a door to the room where they had gathered. They're there out of fear of what might be done to them because of their association with Christ. Now the question is, who are these disciples? Who are they? Well, we know the group doesn't include Judas because out of remorse, not repentance, but out of remorse, he returns the blood money given to him by the Sanhedrin to identify Christ for them in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he goes out and hangs himself in a field called Alkaldama, field of blood. That's where his body will rot and eventually rupture. The group also does not include Thomas. See verse 24? We're not told why, but Thomas is not with them. So there, are there only 10 people present in this room? Some people believe that, but some believe there might be more. You say, well, how, how could there be more? Who, who would they be? 
Well, Luke, in writing his gospel to the Greek Gentiles, says there, there, there were a couple of disciples. One, in, in, one was named Cleopas, who had been in Jerusalem for Passover, and they were now going to Emmaus, which is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And as they're going along, they're talking about what has taken place in Jerusalem, what they had seen, what they had heard, what they had witnessed. And as they're talking, this guy joins them. He joins them and begins teaching them that everything that just happened was foretold by the Lord in the Old Testament. And he begins with the, with the, the, the teachings of Moses, the law. And he continues with the teaching of the prophets the, whom the Lord used to explain his will through his word. And he takes them through the entire Old Testament revelation that was in preparation for the incarnate arrival of Christ, for his earthly ministry, for his atoning death, and for his bodily resurrection. He shows them in the scriptures how the fulfillment of everything the Lord revealed through the feast, the festivals, the sacrifices, the 355 prophecies, were, it was all fulfilled right down to the most minute detail. It was fulfilled in Christ. He lets them know that you just witnessed the culmination of the Lord's eternal purposes that were established before the foundations of the world. And as they arrive wherever it is that they were going, Christ joins them. And he's as, as he's breaking bread with them, their eyes are opened. Oh my. Can you imagine this moment? You're the one. You're the one we saw crucified. You are the one. We saw them bury you. And you're alive, just as they said. You know, we heard women went to the tomb and they found the tomb was empty. And they were told, they were told that you were alive. And so some within our group, they go to the tomb and they find it empty. But they didn't see you. They didn't see you. And now here you are. Here you are. Just as they were told, you're alive. And then Christ leaves them. Luke says their hearts burned within them as he's... As, as he had taken them through the scriptures, showing how everything occurred with precision, just as the Lord said. And now they go back to Jerusalem. And knowing where the meeting place was located, they find the others and they said, we've seen him. We've seen him. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. And as they say this, Christ comes into their midst and says, peace to you. It scares them. It frightens them. They didn't expect it. And he asked him, why is it that you doubt? Why is it that you Come see my hands. See my feet. Touch them. See for yourself. It's real. You're not hallucinating. I'm not a ghost. Come see the nail prints in my hands, in my feet. Look at the hole in my side left by the spear. And so Luke 24 covers the exact same thing that John now tells us about in chapter 20. Both cover this event. And John says that when he had said this, he showed them his hands in his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. By the way, do you know what they had for supper that night? Do you know what they had on Sunday night for supper? Have you read Luke? 
Luke tells us that they gave him broiled fish. Isn't that great news? Is that not something to celebrate? I mean, the Lord gave us taste buds to enjoy the means that he has created for the nourishments of our bodies. And he doesn't take those away at the resurrection. That is fabulous news. That means that when we die and we are reunited with our body at the resurrection, we get to keep our taste buds. And in heaven, there will be brownies, (laughs) cobbler, ice cream. And yet these bodies, the resurrected body, will not do what these bodies have done. The resurrected body will neither age, nor die, nor decay. So there will be no detrimental sugar in heaven. Notice the doors are locked as they listen to the testimony of these guys from Emmaus. And John writes that Christ comes to them and says, peace be with you, which is what Luke also recorded. Kind of a common way to greet one another in that day. But I think this is far more significant than just a a common greeting. You say, why is that? Well, because remember Christ in this very room promised back in John 16. He said, in me, you'll have peace. You'll have peace. It's a peace that he will purchase at the cross. It's a peace that goes with it is finished. To tell us, die, it is finished. What, What is finished? Our reconciliation with the Lord is finished. Therefore, we have peace. That's the reason that that, that Paul begins all of his epistles this way. Grace to you and what? Peace. This is the peace of which Christ spoke to Mary of Magdala. My father is your father now. My God, your God. We're at peace with him through Christ. You're no longer alienated from your creator by sin. You're no longer at enmity with him. You're now at peace with him. So this is not a frivolous greeting, but it's one that has underlying substance and meaning and purpose. Now, how do we know? How do we know that's for sure? Well, after he says this, he shows them his hands and his side, and the disciples are glad. That is really I think an unfortunate translation of this word because in other places it's translated rejoiced exceedingly. Glad is an understatement. The wounds in his hands, his feet, his side prove we're at peace with a holy God who is now our Father. We are at peace because Christ has purchased that peace at Calvary. And that peace has a purpose. And man, do we rejoice exceedingly. We are not going to receive what we deserve from a holy God. We are going to receive blessing because of Christ. So verse 21, he says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. See, this word peace, arene, is the kind of peace that nations experienced at the end of a long war. It's the kind of peace that Ukraine is longing for. 
It's the kind of peace that's experienced when conflict between individuals is finally resolved, when neighbors stop fighting with one another and they come to embrace one another. They have peace. It's the kind of peace that brings prosperity after a long struggle is finally settled. This peace is the tranquility of the soul because we have been at war with a holy God through our selfish, rebellious attitudes and behaviors. And now, and now, because of Christ, we are no longer at enmity with him. We've been reconciled through the shed blood of one without blemish. He is no longer our judge, but now our father. This is a piece spoken of in Romans 5 when Paul says, since we've been justified through faith, since that is true, since we've been justified in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, we are not anxious about anything. Why, Paul? We have the peace of God that transcends all understanding, guarding our hearts. Christ promised to give them peace when in this same room, in John 14, again in John 16, he says, my peace I give you. There is no need for you to be afraid. In this world you will have tribulation, but I'll always be with you. Now, as the Father has sent me to bring peace through the blood shed at the cross, that's Colossians 1, I'm now sending you. I'm now sending you. So whatever you thought your life was about, it's, it's over. You understand that? Whatever you thought your life was about has just ended. Your purpose in life is now being changed forever because of the peace that I purchased has a purpose. A friend of mine who was a member of a former church, somebody who was greatly loved and greatly respected physician at UK Medical Center, Dr. Truman Simmons, could often be seen making rounds at the hospital late at night. And I was up there late one night with a family who was having emergency surgery and saw him going from room to room. And, and I asked him, you know, what, what, what are you doing? Why are you here so late? He smiled. He said, I'm visiting my patients. I said, it's kind of late for a doctor to be visiting his patients, isn't it? He said, oh, I'm not visiting them as, as their doctor. He said, I'm, I'm visiting them as a, as a friend, as a Christian. He always carried these small silver crosses in his physician's coat. He would hand out that cross that had a little card with it that had a poem about the cross, and he would hand it out to patients and to nurses and other doctors. It was just his way of, of starting a conversation about life and death and life after death and why Christ's atoning death is absolutely critical and crucial. And I asked him if he ever got in trouble for doing this. He just smiled. He said, he says, listen, my purpose in this life is to glorify Christ. I am nothing more and I'm nothing less than a Christian disguised as a doctor. The Christian life is not a momentary experience whereby we get saved. And then we begin to pray and ask the Lord to bless our goals and ambitions as we pursue life's pleasures. The Christian's life 
is the experience of one who's now at peace with the Lord because of Christ. And who now has a purpose. Has a purpose for this life. That's accomplished through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And you know, the way that that you can tell those who are the wheat of God's harvest from the tares of the world, the way you can, can tell the Lord's sheep from goats who want to benefit from his blessings without truly honoring him, watch them. Watch them. A lot of times they look very much alike, but they live for all the different reasons. Watch how they live. Watch for whom they live. Watch to see if they live for themselves or they are living for Christ. That will give you a hint. Caleb was 80 years old when he went to the Lord and he said, I'm still strong for war, Lord, use me. Caleb and Joshua were the only two out of that whole generation that went into the promised land. And Moses, even Moses, after he was 100 years old, he begs the Lord to allow him to lead the people into the promised land. And the Lord said, no, no, Moses, no. The mission for your calling ends at Nebo. In one of his last epistles, Paul refers to himself as an aging prisoner of Christ. He writes to his, the young man that he was mentoring, Timothy, he says, the time of my departure is at hand. And the word he uses for departure here is analusis. It's the word used for a soldier who has, has removed his backpack and all of his supplies and all of his weapons and everything that he's, he's had for, for war. He has he's thrown it off because his mission is accomplished. The time is near, Paul said, for me to throw off this flesh that I have been in as I have gone to war with the gospel against sin, Satan, and death. And I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. It's not just Paul, Peter too. He says, I will be diligent if after my departure, my exodus, you will be able to recall these things. I want to make sure you remember the truth I taught you, even after I take this flesh off. 2 Peter 1, Paul's last letter to Timothy, chapter 4. He says, I want you to greet Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. And I read that and thought, Ephesus? They were in Corinth. Yeah, they were in Corinth too. And when Paul writes to the Romans, they're in Rome. Yeah. You always find them where the battle is hot. They're in Corinth. They're in Rome. They're in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila are like General Ashby in the Civil War who rode to the sound of the guns. Wherever the battle for God's truth was waged, Priscilla and Aquila were there. You know, one of the saddest experiences in ministry is seeing people who were active at one time, who were faithful, and then they drop out. They quit. They view ministry like some view their service in the military. You know, I did my six years, my eight years, my ten years, my twenty years, and once I'm done, I'm done. Oh, they still call upon the Lord at crucial times in their pursuit of the good life. 
but they really don't view their purpose or their calling to serve for God's glory as being nearly as important as pursuing their own desires. I had a pastor telling me about a guy in his church who's 86 and he is still as active, if not more active today than he ever was, working behind the scenes. And when he's asked why, why at 86 are you still doing this? He said, I'm here to participate in the body of Christ, not to observe it. His pastor said when he dies, all of his family's already gone. He said, I'm going to put that on his tombstone. I'm here to participate, not to observe. How did these disciples understand what Christ is saying? How did they receive it? What did they say to him? Oh, Lord, this was great. Man, it was a wonderful three years. I'm so glad that you included me in that. I love seeing your miracles that you did. I love listening to your teaching. Just keep teaching us more, Lord. Just keep teaching us more. Thanks for the memory. It was a great time. Is that how they ended? No, Andrew, who... Every time he's mentioned in the New Testament scriptures, he's always bringing somebody to Christ. He, he finished doing that in Russia. That's where he took the gospel. Matthew dies taking the gospel to Syria and Macedonia and Ethiopia. Philip went to the Ukraine. Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew, went to Asia Minor. Simon talking about the one that's known as the zealot, he left his political party and affiliation behind, took the gospel to Persia. Thomas took it to India. As a matter of fact, all of them, with the exception of John, who survives an attempt to murder him, Nero tried to kill him and then viewed him superstitiously when he survived being thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil. He's really the only one that ends up getting to die a natural death. But it's not just that these guys died for Christ, they lived for Christ. They lived for him all the way to the end. The purpose for which the Lord sent Christ into humanity is accomplished at the cross. But the purpose for which the Lord redeems us through Christ's atoning death is accomplished when we teach that good news to others that the Lord might be glorified. There are so many today who love to misquote Isaiah. You know, here I am, Lord, send Bill. Verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You know, many don't agree as to what this means, but I thought it was helpful to look back in the Greek and find that there's no direct object. There's no direct object. On them is not there. It's added to the English translation to, I guess, believe to make it clearer. But it's just the word from emphasizo, for to breathe. So it, it literally means he just exhale, he exhales, he exhales. And says, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now Christ promised in John 14, John 15, John 16, he would send the spirit of truth. And he does. When? When does he do that? Pentecost? Is that what we read in Acts 2? 
You know, Christ said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And this is how you will be able to do what I've called you to do. You understand that? Receive the Holy Spirit. The, where does truth come from? Receive the Holy Spirit. Where will our courage come from? Receive the Holy Spirit. Where will our perseverance come from? Receive the Holy Spirit. When? Is it here in John 20? It doesn't appear that way. Say, so why is that? Well, Thomas is not with them, and he certainly was included in receiving the Holy Spirit. Say, so, yeah, well, he could have received the Holy Spirit later. Okay, well, what about the fact that, they, when, that Christ says earlier, the Holy Spirit will come when, the Holy Spirit will come when he goes to the Father. Remember back in John 16? It is to your advantage I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. Thirdly, he says later in Acts 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What do they do following this encounter? Do you remember? We're going to get to it in the next chapter. What do they do? They go back to fishing. So the question is, why exhale when he says receive the Holy Spirit if he's not giving them the Spirit at this time? What is the purpose of this? Is it so they will know that when the Holy Spirit comes that that Spirit is from Christ? That this is how Christ will be with them to the end of the age? So they will know this is how the New Testament Scriptures that they record these eyewitness accounts in the Gospels that talk about his ministry and his teachings and his miracles and his death, burial, resurrection, that they will all be recorded with accuracy even though they are fallen human instruments. The word that is given by the Holy Spirit will be accurate. Is this how we are to receive the book of Acts that reveals his body on earth as the church will begin and how they will worship together, how they will do community together while accomplishing the purpose for which this peace was purchased for them? Is it not by the power of the Holy Spirit the epistles will explain the gospels? All that is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The significance of that? Is it not the Holy Spirit that, that gives us the book of Revelation promising the return of Christ? I mean, is not all of this going to be theonoustos, God-breathed, profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work? I mean, is this not what we also see back in the beginning in Genesis 2 when the Lord creates man? What's he do? He breathes into him the breath of life. And Adam becomes a living soul. This is how you will become a new creation. This is how you will be alive in the body of Christ. This is how you will carry out the will of the Father. Not according to human ingenuity or cleverly devised tales. The Holy Spirit will indwell you with power. 
and as temples of the Holy Spirit, you will be fearless, boldly proclaiming truth, declaring how sins are forgiven, as well as how judgment comes. See verse 23? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, some astute student of Scripture is going to ask, how is this possible? I mean, Mark 2 is pretty clear, isn't it? Who can forgive sins but God? So this is not about them running around deciding who's going to be forgiven and who isn't going to be forgiven by human authority. That's what some say today, but that's not true. So, well, how do you know? What does this mean? Well, Acts 10 shows you what it means. Peter says the Lord ordered us to preach about Christ who judges the living and the dead. Through him we receive forgiveness of sin. That's what they're to go to proclaim, right? And Paul says the same thing in Acts 13. Through Christ forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. All of you who are born again by the grace of God through faith in Christ are forgiven. Can we not say that with authority? Christ said in John 8, those who refuse to believe in the Lord's provisions for their redemption, you know what? You will die in your sins. This is very clear that the gospel is not about social justice. The gospel is not about prosperity living through the accumulation of things reserved for fire. The focus of the gospel is not even about solving our problems or or making us feel good or fulfilling our dreams and ambitions by by getting the Lord somehow to, to work our side of the street. The gospel is about our peace with the Lord through forgiveness of our sin, which is purchased by the blood of Christ. Are you at peace with God? If you were to die tonight, and don't think because you're young this could not happen. In a former ministry, we had a group of teens camp out on a Friday night. The next week, one of the middle school girls developed viral encephalitis and died at the age of 13. One of the sweetest families in our church. One of the most devastating experiences of my life. We had nearly 100 teens go to Kings Island on a Tuesday. They had a blast. Came back, everybody was so excited with all of the fellowship and camaraderie that they had together. And on Friday, Carla, who was 16 years old, was killed in a car accident. Life is so fragile. Death is so unpredictable. So let me ask you again. If you had to give an account for your life tonight before the Lord, are you confident you are at peace with him? Do you see there in verse 23? Are forgiven is in the perfect tense. That that means it's a completed action that has continuing results. To tell us die. It is finished. And that has continuing results. And notice the word them. What is them? It's plural. Them. All. All. 
whose sins are forgiven in Christ are at peace with the Lord. All of them. How does that occur? You've got to be born again, Nick. Isn't that what Christ told Nicodemus in John 3? You've got to be born again. And those receiving the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit will be able to declare in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the world, including Kentucky, your sins are forgiven in Christ. But know this, if you prefer to approach the Lord, who is holy, on your terms, I can say to you, forgiveness is withheld. Why is that? Because he is holy. He has no choice but to be just with you. No choice. You turn down his provisions for peace and you will die in your sins at war with a holy God. One of the evidences of salvation is how the Holy Spirit works in and through us to God's glory. And if you want to know how um, to identify the work of the Spirit in your life, Tim Taylor told me this week he's going to be leading a very practical and interactive class starting in June during the 1030 worship time uh, over in a classroom here. So if you are interested in that class, you're going to need to come earlier and worship at 9 and then join that class at 1030. Now, if you have other questions, we'd encourage you to go to the Connect table where someone will connect you with the answers that you are seeking. Stand with me as we pray together. Lord, we thank you for so great a salvation that has ended our rebellion with you. That has established peace with you through Christ's atoning death. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise that you will be with us to accomplish what you have called us to be and to do. And Lord, we sincerely pray this morning that those who hear your word will respond in obedience and fulfill their calling as a result of the peace that Christ has purchased for all, for all who believe and trust in him. And in the words of Hebrews 13, May the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, by the blood of his eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good, so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and forever. Amen.